0: Welcome to episode 3 of the Arab Tyrant Manual podcast with Ahmed Gatnash and Yadel al-Baghdadi.
1: So in this episode, we're going to... Uh, we're actually taking a break from a book deadline that uh, Ahmad and I are working on. Um, with events in Iran heating up um, and with the fact that we were kind of late on the third episode of the Arab Tyrant Manual podcast, uh, we thought uh, it really would be great if we can take an hour from our schedule and do a little bit of recording uh, a new podcast. Uh, specifically talking about the situation in Iran. Now, uh, I'll be first to acknowledge and to give a caveat here. I'm not an Iran expert. Ahmed is not an Iran expert. Neither of us are Iranian. However, this is uh, an anti-authoritarian podcast. We might not be Iran experts, but we claim to be experts on authoritarianism and authoritarian behavior, especially when those authoritarian regimes are under revolutionary pressure. So in this podcast, we're going to be speaking about our reading and our reaction to the protest wave in Iran, and a little bit of context as well about authoritarianism in the Middle East, authoritarian behavior, and our own education about human rights in Iran and authoritarianism in Iran.
0: So a few days before the New Year, protests broke out in Iran. What surprised observers this time is that They weren't centered on Tehran, they broke out in regional capitals and smaller cities. A lot of Iran watchers were caught off guard and were saying stuff like, unlike 2009, uh, the green movement protesting stolen elections, they don't actually know anybody who's at these protests. And there are generally a lot of differences between now and 2009. So protests spread for several days, they became very heated, By most accounts, they started over economic grievances, uh, massive rises in prices over the last year, but very quickly people were chanting slogans about death to the dictator and down with the clerics. Um, So it escalated pretty quickly.
1: This is something which is important to note over here. When protests go from economic grievances to asking for the downfall of the regime within hours or within days, you know you have a problem. You know that these people do not believe that this regime can be reformed. They've completely lost hope in this regime or this government bringing any improvement in their, in their, in their, in their daily lives. Which is why, I mean, and this, this kind of reminds of the Arab Spring as well. It reminds of places like Egypt and, and, and Syria uh, and other, other Arab regimes as well where when the, the demand was not exactly give us a new constitution. The demand in the street, I mean, was not give us a new constitution. It was not we want better uh, economic conditions. It was down with the regime. Ashab you read Isqat al-Nadhaam. Why? Because this is a people, the people who took to the streets had completely given up on any chance of improvement coming from within this regime or coming from within the system. I do want to kind of compare and contrast 2009 and now. As you mentioned, a lot of people are commenting and saying that this is different from 2009. And my own education on Iran since 2009 and, you know, 2009 and, and afterwards has come from Iranian human rights activists. Particularly, I should, you know, give a shout out to Maryam Nayab who is a tireless uh, human rights activist. Uh, she's Canadian-Iranian, and she covers... She covers the stories that maybe other, others have missed. And we're going to speak a little bit more about that and why that's important later on. But in 2009, the protests were really about uh, a stolen election. It was really about widespread election fraud committed by the regime in order to push their candidate, Ahmadinejad, to an additional term in office. And of course, supporters of other candidates, they were not happy, and they would not be silenced, and that's where it started. Well, that's what it started as. It started as um, protests, you know, against election fraud. It started from within Tehran, you know, middle-class people, and then it escalated at that point. And you know, at some point, it did got to the point to, of uh, down with the dictator and down with the regime. It did get to that point, al- al- although it, t- it took, as far as I know, several weeks. In this case, however. Yeah, it's different because it actually went from the outside in. It went from the lower, uh, you know, the, the lower economic uh, status kind of uh, provinces, the impoverished areas, marginalized communities, and then it spread inwards into Tehran.
0: So this illustrates one of the systemic problems that authoritarian governments have when you're not open to the people and when you don't have accountability you lose the ability to make valid excuses so some people have pointed out that Iran suffers from a lot of trends that are really outside of their control there's stuff like a bird flu epidemic in which they had to cull millions of chickens and that led to a massive rise in the price of eggs there are severe water shortages as well There's a global drop in oil prices. But when you are an unaccountable government, you don't really get to use these excuses because the valid excuses are mixed in with your own corruption. So instead of problems being something that the country is, you know, we're in this together, it's instead entirely your fault. You insisted on owning it yourself. Now you do own it. So you'd better solve it.
1: That's an excellent point. You own it. So now you own the problem as well. And you see
0: how um, Iranians are basically giving up on their regime. Statistics show that as many as 150,000 educated Iranians emigrate annually, which has been said to cost the country over $150 billion a year. Um, Just anecdotally, some of the most highly educated people I know, academics with multiple PhDs, people working in innovation and global companies, are Iranians. Um, They're the kind of people who can bring massive benefits to an economy and create jobs if they're staying at home but they're not given that chance so is it any wonder that people are basically chanting for the downfall of the regime
1: there is another fact that maybe i i uh i would i would invite you to comment upon which is um how significant is it that it's the lower class that are protesting and asking for the downfall of the regime now
0: two interesting things are firstly it's lower classes who are leading these protests it's um poorer people from outside the capital city and secondly, a news report quoting the regime said that 90% of those detained are under the age of 25. Under the age of 25 means that they weren't adults in 2009 at the time of the Green Revolution. So they don't even share those same grievances, these are people who've come of age within the last seven years and they already hate the government. They're interconnected with the rest of the world. They have social media. They have the internet. And they see how the rest of the world lives. And that means that whatever excuses they're being good, given aren't good enough. They they want better. And they feel they deserve better, which they do. Uh,
1: there is another factor here that I want to comment upon, which is that the, 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 the lower classes, the people who were uh, traditionally marginalized, uh, these used to be the core supporters of the Iranian regime for many years. In fact, I think, uh, and I'm not sure how accurate it it is, and I'd like to be corrected on it, I believe this was the core demographic that actually supported Khomeini back in 1979. And it was was this promise that this is going to be the regime that's going to be on the side of the weak, on the side of the crushed. You know, the traditional Shiaism was always about that. And what we're seeing right now is very remarkable because. The class that used to represent the traditional support of this regime are the ones who are chanting against it, asking for its downfall. Look at the situation here where you have upper and middle class Iranians are highly secularized and they're being ruled by a clerical regime. Meanwhile, you have lower class Iranians who used to be the core support of the regime are also rejecting the regime. So you have this situation where I don't think it is sustainable going into the future. I do not believe it is sustainable for a clerical regime to continue in Iran. I think the main risk is really not about clericalism over there sustaining itself long term. I don't think that is possible. Uh, however, I think that the main risk here is that this you know, somehow morphs from a clerical regime into a military dictatorship. It's interesting that
0: when the revolution happened in 1979 and the years leading up to it, It wasn't entirely a clerical-led thing. There were many groups, um, Marxists and leftist movements. Khomeini basically rode that wave to come to power and then got rid of everyone else after he did. But people have also traced the fact that he absorbed a lot of leftist language into his own discourse around that time. So he started speaking about classes and the palace dwellers versus the slum dwellers so he even tried to position himself where the leftists were as being on the side of the lower classes which is why the the, the fact that it's poor people now protesting is so dangerous
1: uh, well i i want i want to take this towards uh, my own education on iran and how you know and how this has affected my reading of the of the events today uh, and how it affects my own uh, reading of different iran experts uh, and think tanks uh, so, you see, before 2013, before the Iran deal, I, you know, Iran was not really on my, on my radar. Uh, it, it wasn't something that I was reading about every day or researching very deeply. Even though you know, I grew up in the United Arab Emirates, the United Arab Emirates has a large Iranian diaspora, uh, so I grew up around you know, having Iranian friends in school, in the, in the neighborhood. However, uh, politically speaking, I was not really engaged in following Iran news every day until uh, the Iran deal changed things and you know, it made, made this very relevant for me personally. At the time, there were two narratives presented to me and I'd like to explain a little bit about those two narratives and uh, which of these is more widespread and which of these seems to be more vindicated. The first narrative was the one promoted by you know, DC think tanks, certain Iranian journalists and certain groups were either covering Iran or trying to explain what's happening in Iran. And the first, uh, this this first narrative was all about how the Iranian regime has two sides. There were there was there was a certain side in the regime which was more conservative, which was kind of represented by Khamenei, the supreme leader, and you know the IRGC, the I- Iranian Republican Guards, the Revolutionary Guards. Sorry, the the narrative is that these are the bad guys. These are the guys who are illiberal. Uh, these are the guys who are more authoritarian. But then, within the same regime, there is also the reformist camp. And the reformist camp is represented by the likes of Rouhani, uh, Khatami, uh, Jawad Zarif, people who are they're more uh, open to the West, they know how to speak to the West, and they're pro-reform. Uh, this was the narrative that was presented. And the idea here was that you know, we should not say certain things or act certain, a, a certain way otherwise we will, be, you know, we will be screwing over the good guys. And that all we have to do is empower the reformists and you know, try not to empower the, the, the conservatives. This was the narrative actually used to sell the Iran deal. And the narrative didn't make sense for two reasons. The first is that I understand authoritarian regimes and authoritarian behavior. And in fact, around that time, 2013, 2014, it was really when I was researching that most deeply. And it never made sense to me that you can actually reform a regime which is so deeply authoritarian as deeply authoritarian as the iranian regime by simply empowering one party over the other within the same regime i never actually believed that it was possible i still don't believe it's possible and i believe if you think it's possible then maybe you don't understand authoritarianism and authoritarian regimes you see if you look at it on paper, if you look at it theoretically, it seems like it's an easy thing, right? All you need is to abolish the post of supreme leader, abolish the guardian council. Because keep in mind, you know, Iran, in Iran elections are not really elections, they're selections. Because the supreme leader and the Guardian council decide who can or cannot run.
0: They basically say, here are six people, you can choose between them.
1: Uh, exactly. So on paper, it looks simple enough. All you have to do is abolish this mechanism, abolish this al-faqih, or abolish this, this system where either abolish the post of Supreme Leader and the Guardianship Council or make it a figurehead position. So that, you know, they're, they're kind of like you, you kind of either you're going to the path of making this actually a republic or a democracy or you make it kind of something like a like a quote unquote constitutional monarchy. And then you have you know you, and then if you do that, and then you allow of course uh, multi party elections, and it seems that that's enough to make it at least look like a normal democracy where people can actually vote in elections, elect their, their representatives, and you know uh, you 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 get that however, it's not that simple i mean I, we could say the same thing about egypt, for example, we can say, for example, all egypt needs right now we're, we're suffering under uh, Sisi's regime all it needs is a better constitution, um, and free and fair elections. And you know, we're good. This view is actually very naive because it ignores the vice grip that certain unelected institutions have over the entire country. In, In Egypt, it is the Egyptian army, and in Iran, it is the IRGC, the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps. First of all, these institutions are very brutal. They have their own budgets, they control a lot of the economy, and they are primary beneficiaries of the continuation of this kind of authoritarian regime. It's not that easy to remove them from power. It's not that easy to push them out using elections.
0: Something very telling was um, when these protests broke out and it became clear that they were over the state's economic mismanagement, Rouhani came out and basically said in a statement, there are you know, 12 or or so organizations in the state who are taking a lot of money and they don't tell me what's in their budget. They just tell me how much to give them. And it seemed to me like a really weird thing to admit. I'm the president and organizations in the state are asking me for money and they they won't tell me what that money is for and there's nothing I can do about it. You'd think you're the president. Your job is to say no and force them to tell you what it is. But that basically shows that The president is not the guy in charge.
1: Well, Rouhani is not exactly my kind of guy, but, you know, that was refreshingly honest when he comes out and says that, you know, yes, I am the president, but I don't really run things around here, which is actually true. It's a fact. This is the way that the system is built. The actual leader is literally called the supreme leader, and it's not the president. It is, you know, it is a dictatorial figure, an authoritarian guardianship figure, which is the supreme leader, the current one being Khamenei. Going back to what I was saying, this is not how you reform the regime. You, you cannot reform a regime like that by simply electing the right guys.
0: If the guys wanted to really fundamentally reform the regime, they would not be allowed to run for elections. That's the mistake people are making when they, when they fall for this reformist's line.
1: Exactly. Authoritarian regimes, uh, dict- dictatorships have certain imperatives, own everything, run the law, and do not allow any dissent. These are the three imperatives. If I want to give some, you know, a short list of imperatives for a dictatorship, these are the three imperatives I would give. And then they have a business model. The business model is basically kleptocracy. Stealing as much as po- possible from the people. Of course, when it's legal, you don't call it stealing. It's kleptocracy by any standard, by international standards, but then you, know, you actually legalized it. So that's not how dictatorship reform. They reform by increasing the pressure inside and outside you know, from within society and with help from the outside for a long time. So this is why the first narrative never really clicked. I never really bought it. Uh, there's another reason, of course, that I didn't buy it, which is that I was always connected to Iranian human rights news through people like Mariam Nayab and others who were tirelessly translating and tweeting out Uh, news after news after news, report after report after report about the human rights situation inside Iran. And it was really, you know, it was really an education for me because these are news that nobody else was following, nobody else was tweeting. And uh, I I remember in a conversation with Maryam once, she actually told me that. She said that if you want to know what kind of Iranian uh, analysts you're following, go through their timelines and check how often they speak about human rights violations in Iran. And that's true. I mean, I actually did that. And, you know, I don't want to, to name names, but actually it shows very, very clearly who is and who is not uh, uh, committed to the first narrative that I mentioned. So because I always was connected to these Iranian human rights reports, I realized that even though for some Iranians, especially upper middle class Iranians, the Iran deal brought some, you know, some benefits reduced, uh, you know, reduced inflation, etc. So they felt like, you know, their lives are getting a little bit easier. Uh, but then for the vast majority of Iranians, including Iranian human rights activists and civil society activists, there was no difference. In fact, things got worse.
0: And that's one of the excuses that was used. Um, you know, it's, it's because of the sanctions that your lives are so miserable, that the economy is so bad that you can't get jobs. Now the sanctions have been gone. Um, or reduced greatly, but people aren't seeing the massive rise in their living standards that they wanted and they expected. So now they're turning back to Rouhani and going, "What the hell is going on? It's your regime that's stealing the money."
1: The second narrative I mentioned two narratives. The second narrative uh, actually cautioned against the first narrative. It said, "Don't buy into this whole story about the dynamics that matter, being about you know reformists, a reformist camp led by Rouhani and Zarif." and a conservative camp represented by the IRGC and the uh, the supreme leader. And that, you know, the second narrative in this case uh, continued on and it said this is basically a big good cop bad cop routine. Both of these camps are parts of the regime. Both of these camps do not want the regime to radically transform because if it transforms they will be out of power. And when it comes to the most vulnerable Iranians, the vast majority of Iranians, it doesn't matter. And Iranians want this regime gone. So these are the two narratives. I mean, just just to summarize again, the first narrative, you know, like this re- the regime can be reformed, and you know, don't speak about human rights, because you know, if you speak about human rights, if you pressure this regime on human rights, you're going to be screwing over the the, the reformists. You're going to be empowering the, the conservatives. Don't press them on Syria and what they're doing in Syria because you're going to be empowering the conservatives. It's like the conservatives are just so, you know, empowerable, you can't speak about anything that matters because you're going to be empowering the conservatives. And this did not really j- jive well with me. The second narrative, of course, was, you know, it doesn't matter, this is really a good cop, bad cop routine. And there's no, in Arabic, we have, we have, a, we have a saying, the
0: There's no such thing as a smooth hedgehog.
1: So, you know, and of course, the the message here is, the, is, is this, that if you're part of the regime, then you don't want the regime to be radically transformed. Otherwise, you're going to be out of office too. You're going to be out of power yourself.
0: On that note, Saudi Arabian media has been covering the protests really heavily with a very celebratory tone, you know, cheering them on and saying, look, the, the clerical regime is finally falling. Um, you know, they've really hyped it up and made it look like, you know, it's late 2011 Syria or something. They instituted a VAT tax for the first time in 50 years, a few days ago. A columnist, Salah al went on TV to say that people have a right to object to the rise in the cost of living, and they immediately arrested him. Different regime, same stuff.
1: I, I'm really, really, uh, I'm really fascinated by the Saudi reaction to the Iranian protests, the official the Saudi regime reaction. Uh, Jamal Khashoggi, who is a veteran Saudi journalist who is currently in self-imposed exile in, in the United States, uh, and who has come out uh, against the current crown prince and his policies. Uh, he wrote a, an article for the Washington Post recently. It came out on, uh, on Wednesday, and uh, he's kind of analyzing the Saudi official reaction, and he's arguing, and you know, I'm, some of my arguments come from his piece, and some of, the, the, of, of, his, of my arguments are coming from my own reading, but the Iranian protests do not bode well for the Saudi regime for two reasons. The first is that by empowering the idea of street protests and the idea of protesting your government and, and you know, denouncing dictatorship, denouncing unaccountable rule, you're kind of being extremely hypocritical because you engage in the same thing. So by empowering those, those protests, you're actually kind of denouncing yourself without even noticing it.
0: That's what it looks like when you're unprincipled. You contradict yourself. You're sharpening the sword that's going to be used against you.
1: I think as importantly, there's also the point that the Saudi regime, should the Iranian regime fall, or should the Iranian regime seriously suffer some repercussions because of these protests? We don't know yet what's going to happen, of course. We wish them well, but we don't know what's going to happen. But should something happen, the Saudi regime would, would lose one of its biggest rationales for di- for dictatorship.
0: So it's it's basically... a fundamental rule of dictators they need enemies or if you want to crush the people it helps a lot if you're able to say i'm doing this for your own good i'm protecting you you know i have to plunder the economy because we're under existential threat from this external enemy and you know i have to be able to empower the security services to do their job doesn't matter that the security services are more focused on internal threats than external but you're basically um, using it as an excuse and this is Saudi Arabia's thing now that we have an existential enemy in Iran they're spreading across the Middle East they're taking over countries and we have to, we have to combat them if, it, if the Middle East becomes really peaceful tomorrow and all the conflicts fizzle out Mohammed bin Salman has no choice but to try and start some conflicts because he, he won't fare well in that kind of world
1: I'm going back to the two narratives right now and I just want to ask you a question which narrative do you think the Iranian protesters who are taking to the streets actually believe? Do you think they believe that this regime is made up of good guys and bad guys and you have to not speak about human rights, not speak about dictatorship, uh, not speak for the rights of the Iranian people because you don't want to empower the conservatives? Or do they believe that this is a good cop, bad cop routine and that both of these, whether it is Rouhani or whether it is... Uh, Khamenei, both of them are equally bad. They're equally, you know, they're both dictators.
0: Well, the Iranian people are obviously not so naive to believe that there's a, a reformist side. Um, they they lived under Ahmadinejad and saw him up close, and now they're living under Rouhani, and they've seen him up close, and they've seen how the economy has not improved under Rouhani. They've seen how the execution rate has actually gone up under Rouhani. It's, it's no different. It's just a different face.
1: Well, uh, I would argue, and I think some would argue that uh, maybe some middle, upper middle class and middle class Iranians do believe that, and that's what you know. That's what actually leads them to uh, to to you know be a little bit ma- more patient with this regime because you know they think you know maybe we don't want things to get worse, and uh, maybe things are getting a little bit better. But then the whole the whole idea here is that maybe, just maybe, you're only accessing the view of a certain sheltered demographic rather than the view of the majority of the Iranian people. When the people pushing the first narrative said that the Iran deal is improving life for Iranians, um, maybe this was not all of Iranians. It was, maybe it was upper class or upper middle class people from Tehran. This maybe predicts where Egypt might be going and I think there are lots of people who, who said that uh, the next revolution in Egypt is not going to be the, the same kind of revolution as we saw in Tahrir Square in 2011. It will be a revolution that breaks out out of the underprivileged and poor communities who are marginalized and who, who didn't, you know, things did not really change for them all through this, this period. The first revolution did not really improve their lot at all. Uh, It was just that, you know, they're basically getting crushed more and more and more. And at some point, maybe it's going to hit a point where we're going to see a second wave, which is actually going to be motivated mostly by people who are underprivileged, people who who are not the instigators of the 2011 revolution.
0: Here's a very interesting dilemma I saw someone commenting on earlier. In two weeks, Donald Trump is going to have the choice about whether to re-ratify the Iran deal, basically every six months he has to certify that Iran is complying with the deal, and therefore the sanctions relief can continue for the next six months and and it it looks like a dilemma for him because he's going to have everyone knows that he wants to end the deal and re-implement the sanctions and the fact that it now looks like the people are sick of the regime and they're very openly protesting makes it very uncomfortable to say. I'm extending sanction relief for the regime, but on the other hand, if he decides to reimplement sanctions, it's again the people that he's hurting the most. And if sanctions are reimplemented, they may be persuaded to rally around the regime because there's there's no other choice.
1: Well, the the point over here is that if the if uh, sanctions are reimposed, then the regime has another excuse. And I think I did uh, I, I saw a little clip. The, the other day, I think just two days ago. Um, and it was an Iranian uh, person. His face was covered, it was a video. He was actually addressing Trump and uh, Netanyahu, saying, just shut up. Don't speak, we don't want your support because we were crushed for 40 years. This regime has crushed us for 40 years and took you as an excuse. The more you speak and the more you say it, the more you project your own politics upon Iranians, uh, you know, the more you're actually giving ammunition to this regime. The fact is, this is something that is mostly that, that most intimately concerns the Iranians themselves. They are the show. They are the heroes over here. You're going to sit on the sidelines and cheer for them. Your job is to show solidarity with them. They're in the driver's seat.
0: And okay. to illustrate how, how damaging uh, their involvement can be. Um, There's there's a particular Arab commentator who I'm not going to mention the name of, but I basically saw him tweet something along the lines of, if it makes Trump and the Zionists happy, um, it's a bad thing. Therefore, do not show solidarity with the Iranian protesters. Sort of the the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of thing.
1: I mean, I I know who you're talking about. And, you know, it was very, very disappointing to read, especially that it's someone who is uh, quite respected, uh you know for his uh, literary work and his poetry but yeah it's a very very sheltered i would say egotistical view to say that it's not really about us it's kind of orientalism in reverse because instead of saying this is all about us we are in the driver's seat you're saying that it's all about the west it's all about the west and israel and our conscious our, our conscience our solidarity should only be filtered through that It's
0: basically defining yourself through opposition rather than defining yourself positively, rather than saying this is what I'm for and this is what I want and this is what I agree with.
1: But it's also cruel. It's cruel in a sense that you're actually showing no compassion to the people who are on the streets protesting their regime, asking for liberty. Uh, It's like the world revolves around you and your cause. You don't care about what happens to these guys so long you you, you uh, you get to stick it to the United States and Israel.
0: So there are signs now, after about a week, that protests are dying down. There's less, less new cities in the last few days, and the regime sounds confident that they're, that they're going to weather this storm. What does the future bring?
1: Well, Maryam Nayib Yazdi actually tweeted uh, a little thread that was actually quite educational on this, and she said that uh, the Iranian regime, of course, has no qualms about crushing those protests in the most violent possible way. Uh, However, the Iranian regime also has promoted this idea, both inside the country and outside the country, that Iran, thanks to the regime and the the wisdom of this regime, that Iran is now an island of stability in a very, very turbulent region, in a region which is, you know, which saw the rise of ISIS, which saw, you know, the rise of terrorism, war, etc. And, you know, Iran is peaceful and stable. That's what the narrative that they promote says, which is why she believes the regime is not going to go to the extent of uh, using brutal force unless it absolutely has to. Uh, And of course, they're trying to slow down the protests through a combination of uh, conciliatory language, plus also trying to do as much as possible to slow down communication. So they blocked uh, certain internet services, especially Telegram, uh, which was heavily used by Iranians. So the fact is that in many Cities in uh, Iran, it's very very difficult, especially in the cities which are, uh, you know, traditionally marginalized and the uh, poorer areas. It's difficult to actually find out what's going on over there. Uh, in fact, I actually saw a video that I think came two days late. People people did not even know that this city had any protests, and I think two days later, videos were actually uh, released. So it might be too early. I mean, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what's, what the future holds. But as I said, in the beginning of the podcast, it seems that the time is up for a clerical regime in Iran, I think the main risk is really not about a continuation of clerical rule, but rather about this morphing into something more like a military dictatorship.
0: So basically the IRGC becoming even more like a state within a state in the same way as the Egyptian military, it's unaccountable. It has so much control over the economy. It can just decide to jettison the religious stuff, kick out the clerics, and just become a standard military dictatorship like Egypt. There was a hashtag I saw the other day in response to some pro regime people saying, Don't protest, it'll cause chaos and we'll become like Syria. Some people started a hashtag saying, We'll be like Tunisia. And that was amazing to see that even after all these years and even after the rest of the world has given up on it, the Arab Spring still does continue to inspire and continues to reach out across borders
1: Uh, what's interesting here is that people especially uh, you know that dictatorial regimes themselves have sold this idea that if you protest you're going to end up like syria Uh, and the cruelest thing about this is that syria became the hell that it is thanks to iranian support for the dictator bashar al-assad but then the whole thing is reducing the whole story of the arab spring to just the syria example uh, it's kind of like painting over the entire region with one brush. Uh, the models are actually far more nuanced. As you mentioned, there is the Tunisia model where uh, the army took the side of the people, ousted the president, and realized that, you know, we don't want to break the country. It's better for us to actually have a transition. It's better for us to sacrifice uh, the ruler and his family rather than sacrifice the entire country. It's not just Syria. But then they like to bring up the Syria example because, you know, it, it almost seems as if they intentionally made Syria into the hell that it is because they want to use it as a cautionary tale. And it's very inspiring to see that even everyday protesters on the street can see through this.
0: That's it for this episode of The Arab Tyrant Manual. Thanks for listening. I need to reiterate again, neither of us are Iran experts. We're just pointing out the patterns that we see across the board in our study of authoritarianism. If you have anything you'd like to add, please tweet at us or use the hashtag ArabTyrantManual. A few of you complained about the volume last time. Uh, apologies for that. I hope it's been fixed now. Now we're off back to our book work. See you next time. <laughs>
1: يا كتابا من كل قلب تألف ويا زمانا سيأتي يمحو زمان المزيف يا مصطفى يا كتابا من كل قلب تألف ويا زمانا سيأتي يمحو زمان المزيف